So today we come back to this theme, Sin's Solution, in Romans chapter 3. Uh, we have been looking at this section a couple of weeks ago, uh, a paragraph which has been described as probably the most important paragraph that has ever been written. So it's not a bad thing we spend at least two weeks looking at this paragraph in verse 21 to 26. Let me just quickly recap what we were thinking about two weeks ago. We are thinking about righteousness revealed in verse 21, how God's great plan to bring righteousness would come. It was made known to people. It's a righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not by the law. It's not by our works, but it's trusting in what Jesus has done. We thought about righteousness required for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, all people need this righteousness without exception. We've all messed up. And it's a righteousness by grace. It has to be a gift from God. It's not something that we can create in ourselves because we're not righteous. It has to come from the righteous one. It has to come from God. And it comes as a gift through faith. So, righteousness revealed, righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness required, and righteousness by grace. Now, we continue today looking deeper at how we become right with God. So, we'll just continue on from point four to point five, which is righteousness by redemption. Now, let me just read there verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a very rich biblical term, which helps explain what happens at salvation. In Paul's day, it was a very common term. It was used in regards to the slave trade, and it meant that a slave would be purchased in order to set them free. In doing that, that slave was redeemed. They had received redemption. Their freedom was bought. In the Old Testament, in Israel, individuals and families, when they got into great debt, and one of the ways that they could survive would be to go into slavery. And there were very set rules. And we shouldn't think of slavery the way we think of slaves who were then brought from Africa to America. This was very different. But they were provided for. And when you became a slave serving other people, what you hoped for was that you'd have a very wealthy relative who would have the means to buy your freedom and restore you to the position that you had before. Uh, this happened like in the case of Naomi and Ruth in that very famous instance. And although they weren't slaves, Boaz acted as a kinsman redeemer to provide for them in their poverty and to restore the land, to buy the land that had been sold previously in their days of poverty. So, to be redeemed... Therefore meant that you were in a poor, in a bankrupt state, and unable to help yourself out of the mess. You were reliant on someone else, someone from outside, who had the means to pay your debts and to buy your freedom. Because of sin, our debt is so great, and we are unable to contribute anything, anything at all, to pay for our freedom. And we're totally reliant on the only one who has the resources to do this. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ. 
When the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, it was described as a redemption. When you think of how it was secured, you remember the blood of a lamb was put on the doorpost and the doorhead, and the angel of death passed over, killing the firstborn in Egypt. And through that, the Israelites were delivered. They were redeemed. Their, fe- their freedom was bought. And that blood was pointing forward to how Jesus, through what he would do on the cross, would deliver his people from the slavery of sin, take them from the Egypt of sin to bring them to a promised land by what he achieved there. Now, we need to accept, this is crucial, that before God, we have such a great debt because of sin, a debt that's immeasurable. It's because it's against a God of infinite greatness. Our sin is so serious. And it's only Jesus. He alone can pay this debt at the cross. But we thank the Lord. That's what He's come to do. We think of the words in Mark 10 and 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The word ransom, similar to redeemed. It's about buying someone their freedom. And Jesus has come to bring people freedom from sin, from its guilt, from its power, from its consequences. Do you recognize this? That because of your sin, your good deeds, your religious activity can never rescue you? Christ alone can redeem you. Jesus is the only one who can buy you your freedom from sin, can buy you your freedom from sin's judgment. Jesus alone can do this. So it is righteousness. We come right with God by redemption, by Jesus paying the price on the cross. But then point six, it is righteousness through propitiation. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that's not a word I would suggest you'll meet during the week very often around a hockle or wherever you work. Uh, propitiation means to appease, to satisfy, to propel away the wrath of God. It is very closely tied to God's wrath. John Owen, the great Puritan preacher and thinker, says this, that propitiation implies four things. It implies, number one, there is an offense. Number two, there is an offended person. Number three, there is an offender, a person who's guilty of the offense. And number four, there is a sacrifice for the offense. Now, let's think of those just for a wee moment. First of all, there is an offense. Do we understand that our sin is an offense to God. It is of offends God. There is an offended person. God is this offended person. God takes our sin personally because when we sin, it's not that we are just breaking the rules in a book. When we sin, we're saying to God, we don't trust you. We don't trust your ways. We believe we know better, and we're going to do it our own way. When we sin, we're shaking our fist at God. That's why there's no such thing as a small sin, because all sin is an offense against God. 
we're the offenders. We're those who are guilty. We've all sinned. We're all under sin, Paul has taught. And therefore, there has to be a sacrifice for this offense. This concept of appeasing God's wrath, of a sacrifice, it's controversial because for some people, it goes against their idea of God being a God of love. How can you think of God as being a God of wrath? And that is one of the reasons why in some modern translations, not the ESV, but it is true in the NIV and some others, they've taken out this word propitiation, this word of satisfying God's wrath. Because for some people, it doesn't fit with their idea of God's love. But the reality is that while the Bible speaks about God's love, and thank God this word speaks about His love again and again, the reality is the Bible also constantly speaks about God's wrath. In the Old Testament, there are 20 different words for God's wrath, 20 different words which are used about 580 times, speaking of God's wrath. And in the New Testament, the subject of God's wrath is regularly repeated as well. I'll give you one verse, John 3 and verse 36. We think of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. But verse 36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So when we believe in the Son, we have eternal life. But if we don't do that, if we don't trust in Jesus, God's wrath remains on us. We think of the descriptions that Jesus made of hell, and clearly God's wrath was a very important part of those descriptions. As He speaks of hell as a place where the fire is not quenched, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. In the book of Revelation, this theme of God's wrath runs right through the whole book of Revelation. In Revelation 14, it says this, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, that is, anyone basically who is following the sinful ways of the world, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So there it speaks of God's wrath. It speaks of God's anger being poured upon those who are not saved, who have followed the wicked ways of this world and have not repented of it. Here in the book of Romans, the word wrath occurs 12 times. We've already actually had it five times up to the point we're at now. If you take chapter 1 and verse 18, it says this, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Chapter 2 and verse 5, it says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there it's mentioned twice. Going down to verse 8, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be 
wrath and fury. And then chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says this, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So this idea that some people have that the Old Testament is about a God of wrath, and the New Testament is about a God of love, is nonsense. The Old Testament is about a God of wrath and love. The New Testament is about the same God of wrath and love. But I think there's another reason why people struggle with this idea of God's wrath having to be satisfied, is that they can mistake God's wrath for human anger. You think of how, as humans, we lose our temper. We lose our self-control. We fly off the handle. We fly into a rage. And sometimes, sadly, it maybe doesn't take too much to cause us to do that. And people then, we think about God's wrath. God is like that. God just loses control. God just flies off the handle. No, God's wrath is not like human anger. God's wrath is never God losing control or God losing his temper because, remember, God is never caught by surprise. God's wrath is his settled and constant opposition to all sin and to all wickedness. God's wrath is the necessary response of the God who is holy and pure against that which is evil. God cannot be God. God cannot be a God who's perfect in His purity and perfect in His righteousness and not be moved to wrath at that which is sinful and that which is wicked. Yes, praise God, He is loving. He has a, a benevolence that reaches out to all of mankind. But at the same time, God's wrath is hanging over all people whose sin has not been dealt with, for those whose sin has not been propitiated, for those whose sin has not been appeased, for those who have not had Jesus sheltering them from the wrath of God, God's wrath still hangs over those people. The only way that our sin can be dealt with, the only way that we can escape the wrath of God, is that He who had no sin became sin for us. He went to the cross of Calvary. He endured the wrath of God upon Himself in that darkness. And as He cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the only way that we can be rescued from the wrath of God. And when we come and trust in Jesus, praise God, we will never receive God's wrath. But if we do not trust in Jesus, if we have not embraced Christ as our Savior and Lord, God's wrath continues to hang over us. It's still there, waiting. There's a famous story told by an ancient writer, Cicero, called the Sword of Damocles. It tells the story of King Dionysus, who was a king who was absolutely paranoid for his safety. He 
was always thinking people were plotting to kill him. He, he lived in a, slept in a bed surrounded by a moat, and the only people that he would allow to shave him and put a, a razor to him were his daughters. I don't know if I'd allow my daughters to do that, but uh, he wouldn't trust anyone else. And one day, to Dionysus came this man, Democles, or Damocles. And Damocles looked at the wealth, he looked at the power, he looked at the splendor that the Onesies had, and he took, Damocles says to him, you know, I'd love to have that. Well said the Onesies, do you want to know what it's like to be me? I'll let you have it for a day. And so Damocles was taken into a room, and there he was tended on hand and foot to all the luxuries that he could imagine. And then he looked up, and above him was a sword, razor sharp, held to a beam with a single hair of a horse. And Damocles says, what's going on here? And the honesty says, that's what it's like to have be me, have all this luxury, but to have that sword of death and judgment just hanging over you. And that's what it means to be an unsaved person. That's what it means not to be a Christian, is that we live maybe in happiness and luxury, but that sword of judgment is hanging over us, hanging, as it were, by a thread which could break at any moment. God's wrath it's something we all need to take seriously and realize our only hope has to be propitiation, Jesus appeasing the wrath of God by Jesus taking it upon himself. And this brings us to our final point, our seventh point, which is righteousness demonstrated. Look there at the end of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, what were the former sins that Paul is speaking about here that God had passed over? Well, they were the sins of those who were genuinely God's people in the Old Testament. Jesus' death acted as a propitiation for the sin of his people who would come after him. But his death was also retrospective. His death was also dealing with the sin of the people of faith who had come before him. Now think of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was created as a temporary means to cover the sins of the people in the Old Testament. But the sacrifices of bulls, goats, and lambs, the writer of Hebrews tells us, could never take those sins away. They were a temporary measure. The sacrifices were pointing forward to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, the act of propitiation with the blood of Christ, which alone can save people from God's wrath and from their sin. In the Old Testament, one of the most important days of the year was the Day of Atonement. On that day, once a year, two goats were brought to the high priest. He put his hands on the goats, speaking about representing the sin of the people being transferred to these goats. One of the goats 
was cast out of the camp of Israel, cast into the wilderness to die. And it points forward to how Jesus would be cast out from the presence of God, how he'd die outside the camp, outside of Jerusalem, for the sin of his people. The other goat, it was killed, it was sacrificed, and his blood was taken by the high priest into the holy place where the priests serve, and then beyond the holy place into the holy of holies. And this was the only time in the year that anyone could enter the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could do it with the blood of that second goat. And the blood was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the cherubim were hanging over. That place which spoke of God's special presence. Do you know what the Greek word was for that cover? It's sometimes translated as mercy seat. But the Greek word for that cover is the same word, propitiation. And what it was saying was basically, it's not this blood of this goat that's going to save the people, but this sacrifice is pointing forward to another one who would die as a sacrifice for the sin of his people hundreds of years later. It was saying to the people of the Old Testament, look forward, there's one going to come. There's one going to come to propel away the wrath of God. And these lambs, these goats, these bulls, which are sacrificed, were a symbol of the one who is to come. And so the only way that anyone could be saved, Old Testament or New Testament, would be through the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. Now, as Jesus died on Calvary, as Jesus propelled away the wrath of God by his blood being shed, Jesus was dying for sinners like you and I, born after his time. But Jesus was also dying for the likes of Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those saints of the Old Testament. And this is pointing to the crucial fact that the only way anyone can be saved at any time, in any place, the only way anyone can be saved is always only through Jesus and his shed blood for sin. Do you remember Jesus spoke about how he was going to die? And Peter took him aside and said, Lord, that's not going to happen. And he says to Peter, get behind me. And shortly after that, Jesus went up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And he met with Moses and Elijah. And they spoke about Jesus' departure, his exodus. This was very relevant for Moses and Elijah. Because what Jesus was going to do, his exodus, his death on the cross, that was for the salvation of Moses and Elijah. Because the only way that they indeed could be right with God would be through what Jesus would do on that cross. The cross is the only way of salvation. And this is why Christianity is so unpopular. You can go about as Christians and do good deeds and kind deeds and people think that's all right. But when you begin to share the message that salvation 
is in Christ alone. It's through His shed blood alone. It's through what has happened on the cross alone. When you begin to share that message, it's seen today as intolerant. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a message the world doesn't want to know. But this is the truth. This is the message of Jesus. This is the message of the New Testament. There is only one way of heaven, and that is through the sacrifice of Jesus. Look at verse 26, sir, what he says. Paul says about Jesus' sacrifice, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, in a sense, the great dilemma that God has, how can he remain a righteous and just God, a righteous and just judge, and let guilty sinners go free? You see, in the next picture, go back to the story we shared the kids about Jack and Kevin, and about how indeed Jack was the, the judge, Kevin, his wayward brother, was caught stealing and when it came to the case, Jack, as judge, pronounced him guilty. He pronounced the fine. He couldn't just say to his brother, Ach, you're my brother. I'll let you go free. Yes, you've stolen this money, but you're my brother. We'll ignore it. You think of the outcry of a judge who lets the guilty go free. It's a tremendous outcry, and rightly so. A just judge cannot let the guilty go free. And so here, Jack couldn't let his brother go free without the punishment being paid. So what did Jack do? He came off the bench. He pronounced his son guilty, or his brother guilty. He came off the bench, and he paid the fine himself. And that is what God has done in Jesus Christ. God has declared that we are guilty. We are guilty of our sin. We deserve his judgment. We deserve his punishment. But God himself has come to pay the price at Calvary. God, in the form of his Son, has come to shed his blood so that the righteous God, the righteous judge, can allow the guilty to go free because he himself has taken the price of our guilt upon himself in full. What a wonderful message we have. It's not a message the world wants, but it is the truth. It's the message the world needs. It's a message the people you work with, the people you study with, the people you live among, the people you socialize with. This is the message they need to hear. And we need to pray that God will give us the grace to share it. Let me very quickly recap and can encourage you to read over these six verses here of Romans 3, when you go home, righteousness revealed, the message is revealed here by God. Righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness required, we all sin and fall short. Righteousness by grace is a gift, not something we earn. Righteousness by redemption, Jesus buys our freedom. Righteousness through propitiation, Jesus shed blood is our only hope to propel away that wrath. And righteousness demonstrated. It is only through Jesus God the Son dying, that God can be just and allow the guilty like us 
to go free because Jesus has taken it upon himself. What a wonderful gospel. Let us pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your precious truth. And Lord, this Easter time, we have thought about the death. We thought about the resurrection of Christ. We, we think of your wonderful plan of salvation. And Lord, we just pray that we would be people who are grounded in this, people who are convinced of this, people who are resting on Jesus and His shed blood alone for our salvation. Nothing in our hands we bring, but to that cross we cling with every ounce of our being and our faith. And Lord, if any here are not under that blood, who are not sheltered from your wrath, Lord, make them aware of that even now and draw them to Christ and salvation. And Father, for those of us who receive this wonderful salvation, may we not rest until, O oh God, we share that with this needy world around us. And all for the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.